You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Welcome to Strange Familiars. Strange Familiars is brought to you by 90 Days to the Perfect Puppy. You can find them at sithappens.us. Look for the 90 Days to the Perfect Puppy link at the top of the page. How are you doing tonight, Allison? I'm doing well. Well, tonight we're going to return to the story of Peggy LaRue, the ghost thereof. Mm-hmm. And tonight we'll actually get to some ghosts. Well, at least one, maybe just <laughs> Peggy's ghost. Actually, there's more than one ghost, because later in the episode, we'll be hearing from John and Sam from Riverbend Comics. You might remember earlier in the year when I had my stay in the hospital, they came in and they did an episode about comics and the paranormal for us, where they're going to step in and do a short segment here and there, maybe once a month, about some more paranormal comics. And tonight, they're going to be talking about some ghost stories and comics, because tis the season. This week, sometime after this episode, I will be dropping the first patron show for October. We do two full episodes of Strange Familiars for our patrons every month. This particular episode is the first of a series. It's not the kind of series where you're going to have to listen to part one, then part two, then part three. You could listen to them in any order. Each episode in the series will be you know, complete unto itself. But thematically, they're related. Thematically, they're related. Something I wanted to do for a long time. If you heard my talk at Strange Realities, I mentioned it. It is looking at 
the paranormal and the supernatural in traditional folk ballads. It's something I've really wanted to jump on for years and years and years, probably even before we had a podcast. I wanted to do something with this. So that will be sometime this week, the first in that series. I'm super excited about it. We're going to do something a little different with these ballad episodes. I am going to make them available to purchase for people who aren't patrons. So if you're a patron, you'll get it for free. It'll be one of your patron shows of the month. If you're not a patron, I'll put it on Stonebreath Bandcamp because it has to do with music. I think it kind of fits that. And I did record a new version of the ballad in question, which is Rainer Dean that we're discussing. So I will put that on the Stonebreath Bandcamp. You could purchase the episode. If you're not a patron and you just want this one episode, you can get that. But for patrons, like I said, you'll get the episode for free, and I will give you a download of the song as well, separate from the episode. So another advantage to being a patron. Then we're going to do a second patron episode this month. It's kind of a grab bag. We're going to do a, a bunch of different things in that episode. And I think we're going to have a Halloween special as well. If you want to get the extra content, if you want to get the patron episodes we do every month and help support the show, you can become a patron at Patreon, patreon.com slash strangefamiliars. It's the best way to help support the show. Go ahead and check it out. There's different tiers of support there if you want stuff like t-shirts, although we're out of a lot of sizes right now, but we're getting restocked soon. Stickers, pins, etc. Go ahead and check it out. Patreon.com slash strangefamiliars. If you don't like the idea of a subscription service like Patreon, you can make a one-time donation using the paypal.me link. You can find that in the show notes at strangefamiliars.com under any episode. Just look for a paypal.me link, click that, and make a one-time donation. All right, the ghost of Peggy is waiting for us. From the Lancaster Intelligencer Journal, August 9th, 1924. All night party ends in death of Columbia Butterfly, wounding of local man and near death of five others. Peggy LaRue shot to death by Kid Mac, pugilist, who fatally wounds Lenora O'Brien, his girl, and shoots D.W. Dorward, this city. Peggy LaRue, Columbia Butterfly, paid her last installment on a life of joy and freedom last night in a field near York when a drunken companion ran amok, shot her dead, wounded D.W. Dorward of this city, disfigured Lenora O'Brien, another woman, and may have fatally wounded himself. The shooting, which followed a drunken orgy lasting all night, was done by Fred McLean, a boxer widely known in Lancaster and southeastern Pennsylvania as Sailor Kid Mac. An empty bottle and two full ones containing moonshine told the story when the victims were too badly hurt to talk. Miss LaRue was inmate of Grace Parago's place. Left here last evening and left with Dorwart about 10 o'clock. Peggy LaRue, the girl who was killed at York early this morning during a drunken party by Kid Mac, the prizefighter, while in company with D.W. Dorwart, this city, was an inmate of the house of Grace Blake Parago, South Front Street near Perry, Columbia. Miss LaRue left the Parago place last evening between 9 and 10 o'clock with Dorwart for York. Peggy LaRue has a past. She is the daughter of a roadhouse keeper in New Jersey and the wife of a lawyer who was serving a term in the federal penitentiary for defrauding the government. Her maiden name is Carmen LaRue, and her married name is Snyder. Neither one of those are actually yeah, true. Not accurate. <laughs> this is the day of the murder, yeah, so they so haven't figured everything okay. out yet. 
She was a frisking little girl of the chorus type. She came to Columbia three weeks ago as a guest at Grace Blake Parago's house on Front Street, Columbia, near Perry, and because of her build and looks and intelligence soon had many admirers. She told Grace Parago that she had been serving as a nurse at the Skillman, New Jersey State Hospital, but life there was too drab and she wanted to have some fun. The money which her husband is supposed to have secured from the government is said late today to be in Columbia, or at least evidence of it. In speaking of Miss LaRue, Grace Blake Parago, proprietress of the House of Ill Fame, at which D.W. Dorwart picked her up last night, 239 South Front Street, Columbia, the Parago woman said, Miss LaRue came here about three weeks ago, and she was a good-looking, intelligent girl, and soon had many friends. I never leave my girls go out, but Mr. Dorwart was such a fine man, and Miss LaRue pouted so much that I agreed. But never again. Only once before did I leave one of my girls go out, and she got killed. That was Sissy Goodling, who was with me when I lived in Philadelphia. Now here, Miss LaRue goes out and gets killed. That will be the last time one of my girls will ever get out to go with fellows. Why should they go out? There are lots of drinks here in the house, and lots of fellows come around. Well, that's all. Never again. Grace then went on and told how hard a time Miss LaRue had. How she was reared in a roadhouse in New Jersey and how she married a rising lawyer named Snyder and was getting on well when he was arrested and convicted for defrauding the government, and then how Peggy took the money and banked it and went to work to keep herself until her husband could get out and they could settle down again with enough money to start over. But trying to keep herself as a nurse in the state hospital was too great a task, and rather than break in on the money which she was holding for her husband, she took the easier way and, according to Grace, was doing very well. The York police took away all the effects of the LaRue girl and were trying to trace down all angles of her life today. Late this afternoon, they confirmed in a large part what Grace Parago told an intelligencer man. Grace Blake Parago is a woman who, as a girl, figured in the Red Lake District cleanup in Lancaster 10 years ago. Recently, the Parago woman was arrested by the authorities for having dope in her place. She's out on bail on that charge now. She's been arrested numerous times in raids in Columbia and elsewhere, and once held for observation as to her physical condition at the local county hospital. The Columbia police authorities only knew of the LaRue girl casually, it being claimed that she came to Columbia quite recently. The shooting followed an argument over a pistol belonging to Kid Mac. His girl had taken it away, evidently to keep him from running amok, but unfortunately he discovered it. The shooting began. A bullet pierced the O'Brien woman's face. Another intended for her struck the LaRue girl who was lying in the field. It entered the back of her skull. Two more bullets were sent in the direction of Dorwart, who was already wounded in the hand and was running away. Dorwart resides at 737 Chestnut Street and is a bookkeeper for the arcade garage here. Mac next turned the revolver on himself and sent a bullet into the body an inch above his heart. He is now in the York Hospital, probably will die, and is being guarded by two deputy sheriffs. Every story has a beginning. The sordid story revealed today by the York police bespeaks the undercurrent of life here and exposes conditions surprising as they are intolerable. The moonshine found was said to have been contained in soft drink bottles and was obtained, police say, at a house of ill repute in York. The beginning of Peggy LaRue's story of the day finds her with Dorwart, a young chap who picked her up in Columbia about 11.30 last night and headed for York for a party. Restaurants which somehow figure in these things as the saloons and side rooms of the old days once did also figure in the story. It was in a York restaurant where Peggy and Dorwart met Kid Mac and the other woman. 
an acquaintance was struck up presently, as it is with those people, and the magic word of moonshine electrified the party. The York people knew exactly where to get it. That phrase was sufficient to weld a bond of friendship which was to be so rudely rent asunder a few hours later. Intervening intimacies are not to be recorded, but suffice to say the party headed for the Dover Road and parked a few miles outside the city. About five o'clock this morning, Paul A. Strickler, bound from Dover to York, brought his car up abruptly as a swaying drunken man stuck up a grimy hand and ordered him to stop. I just shot two women and myself, hoarsely whispered Mac. Take me into the hospital. Me and them, huh? He queried, staggering against the car. Strickler grinned. Just some poor drunk, he thought. But Mac saw the grin. Don't you believe it, he gasped resentfully. See? He swayed back and forth in the road as he roughly tore open his shirt to expose the wound near his heart. But Strickler had seen enough to know that something was wrong and stepped on the gas. He went to York and informed the police. House officer Soule and Detective Schwint investigated. In a field, a short distance outside the city where Strickler was stopped, the policeman found the corpse of Peggy LaRue, still lying in the field. Near her was the prostrate form of the O'Brien woman whose face was disfigured and made more horrible by the smeary blood. Dorwart was found some distance away, suffering from a wound in his left hand. Mac was still staggering around in the road, cursing his luck and hunting for help, half-blind, bloody, and begrimed. They took the party to York Hospital, where they are being treated. Peggy LaRue was taken to the morgue. The red-light district of Columbia, of which the dead girl was an inhabitant, clamped up tight after it was learned that she had been killed. The house at which Peggy was supposed to have lived claimed that she had not been there recently, and that if she was, she went under some other name. It was also claimed that if Peggy was the woman who the Columbia red-light followers thought she was, she is the wife of an actor and came to Columbia more or less infrequently to stage parties by arrangement with male friends. Those who thought they knew her said she once was a handsome girl, but the life she had led had begun to tell, and that with the later years came the inevitable hard features and lines. Leonora O'Brien, who was so seriously shot by McLean, Kid Mac, is known to the York police as a gold digger and Kid Mac's girl. She and Mac had figured in numerous police court affairs and have been fined in police court several times when their love affairs and booze parties led to Donnie Brooks. The O'Brien girl lives at 912 College Avenue with her mother, and it was said at the hospital that she would recover. She had $180 in her purse when taken to the hospital. That's a good bit of money for that. During the mid-20s? I yeah. would say so. Yeah. If I had that much on me now, I'd be pretty pleased. <laughs> <laughs> at the hospital where Kid Mac hovers between life and death, he told Detective White that he was awfully sorry that he had shot Dort and Miss LaRue, but he was not sorry that he had shot the O'Brien girl. He went on to say that he had planned to kill the O'Brien girl for a week and had gotten the revolver for that express purpose. Wow. In conclusion, he said he had hoped the O'Brien girl would die. District Attorney W.W. W. Van Bauman had a warrant sworn out charging Kid Mac with murder, and another sworn out to hold Dorward as a material witness. The first intimation the police had of any trouble was furnished them by Polly Strickler of Dover, who rushed into police headquarters about 5.20 this morning. Strickler told the police that he was on his way in his machine from Dover to Baltimore. He said he was driving along the Carlisle Road when a man, who it later developed was Sailor Kid Mac, ran out on the road and stopped him. McLean is said to have told Strickler that he had shot two girls. He also showed Strickler the hole in his chest made by the self-inflicted bullet. Strickler got out of his machine and ran to the spot where the shooting occurred. He saw the two young women lying on the grass. Frightened, he urged McLean to get in his car and go to York. McLean refused, and when he did, Strickler jumped in his car and drove directly to the police headquarters, where he told the story of what he had seen and heard. 
Getting into an automobile, plainclothes officers Schwint and Soul went to the scene of the shooting. They found the LaRue girl and Miss O'Brien lying on the grass. Miss O'Brien was writhing in pain from her injury. Miss LaRue was dead, apparently. McLean could not be found. After a short hunt for McLean, Soul and Schwint loaded both girls into the automobile and took them to the York Hospital. 32 caliber revolver found. On the spot where the girls were found, plainclothes officers Soul and Schwint found a 32 caliber revolver. An examination of the gun revealed all five cartridges discharged. They also found two empty pop bottles full of some sort of bootleg liquor. The gun and the bottles were taken to police headquarters and put under lock and key. From Dorwart, the story of what happened in the field along the Carlisle Road was obtained by the police. Dorwart said that while the party in the field was in progress, McLean went to sleep. While he was asleep, the O'Brien woman slipped the revolver from McLean's pocket and put it in her stocking. Dorwart knew, police say, that McLean had a gun, as McLean had shown it to Dorwart when the party was in the house in the south end of the city where the liquor was obtained. McLean woke up and found his revolver gone. He accused Miss O'Brien of taking it, and a fight ensued. McLean hit Miss O'Brien several times, threw her to the ground, and took the revolver from her stocking. She leapt to her feet. McLean, then in the possession of the gun, fired. The bullet penetrated the O'Brien girl's cheek, and she fell to the ground. McLean, according to Dorwart's story, then shot at Miss LaRue, who was lying on the grass in a stupefied condition from the liquor which she had taken. The bullet entered the back of her neck, near the base of her skull, and penetrated the brain. It is believed that she died instantly. Thoroughly frightened, Dorwart started to back away, throwing his one hand into the air. As Dort retreated, still facing McLean, McLean shot, and the bullet went through the palm of Dort's right hand near his wrist. Thus far, three shots have been fired. The fourth empty cartridge is unaccounted for, but the police believe that McLean fired a second shot, which failed to take effect at Dort as he ran away. The last cartridge McLean emptied as he turned the revolver upon himself. The bullet failed to inflict an immediately fatal wound and he had put the muzzle of the revolver against his chest a bit too high, and the bullet passed about an inch above his heart. In the meantime, Dorrit, with the painful bullet wound in his hand, continued his retreat. He ran across the fields to a farm where he found the farmer sitting on the porch of the farmhouse. Asking how to get to the nearest physician, Dorrit was directed to go to Dr. W. H. Horning, who has his office at 1417 West Market. Dorrit went to Dr. Horning, who sent him to the Westside Sanitarium. At the Westside Sanitarians, for some reason, he was directed to go to the York Hospital, and he was taken to the hospital by a local man in an automobile, and the police found him there. After McLean had fired the last shot into his own body, and a few minutes later had refused Paul A. Strickler's offer to take him to York, he fell along the road exhausted from the effects of his wound, the police were told. During the interval in which Strickler was reporting the shooting to headquarters, a motorist, said to be a man named Grant Nicely, who was going fishing, found McLean along the road. He loaded him up in his automobile and came to York. McLean is charged with the murder of Miss LaRue in an information made before Alderman John I. Keach. The information was proffered by Martin L. Van Bayman, father of District Attorney W. W. Van Bayman, at the latter's direction. The District Attorney took charge of the case early this morning. He ordered the Charles S. White Detective Agency to make a thorough investigation into the shooting and the information charging murder was based on the White Agency's report. Outside the room in the hospital, where Miss O'Brien, Dorwart, and McLean are confined, are stationed officers with instructions to place all under arrest. McLean will be held on the murder charge, while Miss O'Brien and Dorwart will be detained as material witnesses. Deputy Sheriff Howard Kleinsenst was on duty early this morning, but was relieved later by Deputy Sheriff E.H. Harner. 
Sailor Kid Mac came to the city about three years ago and entered pugilistic circles under the management of Charles Hip, then a prize fight promoter and manager. When the State Athletic Commission demanded that fighters take out licenses, Mac was out of the game for a while. Recently, he took out a license and fought in two shows staged in the Orpheum Theater by Lancaster promoters this summer. Mrs. O'Brien, mother of Eleanor O'Brien, was not informed of the tragedy until this afternoon. Mrs. O'Brien was called yesterday to Rocky Ridge, Maryland, owing to the serious illness of a brother, Charles Willard. She was communicated with by telegraph and returned to York late this afternoon. Dorrit was shot through the right hand, and according to authorities at the York Hospital, the member is not badly injured. He will be able to leave the institution within a day or two. The doctors are planning to remove the bullet. He is under police guard in the institution, and a charge of being a witness has been charged against him. Dort was able to talk to an intel reporter as he lay on his cot, but had little to say. When questioned, he said he went to York with Peggy, and that when he left Lancaster, he did not know that they were going to meet the other couple. He said that his girl suggested meeting them when they got to York. Asked why Kid Mac pulled the revolver and did the shooting, Dorwood shook his head and said he didn't know. Dorwood would not talk about the shooting, but the York police said that after the Lancaster man saw his partner shoot the two girls, he started to run, and that Mac fired at him, striking him in the hand. So that kind of recaps the night and then goes into the details of the shooting. So I think where we left off last week... I think Lenora had taken the gun and put it in her stocking. I think that's where we left it, yeah. Okay. For people who are local, I just to give you... I always like to know kind of where things are currently. Mm-hmm. This was an empty field just past the York Fairgrounds. It's pretty much where the West York Robberitos is now. <laughs> Robberitos getting free advertising on Strange <laughs> But I, I like to know it's like um, where things happen and ironically across from a rather large cemetery. So that's the big article. That's literally the day of. I guess that all happened at like five in the morning. The newspaper rushes and gets this out in the edition that day. Sailor Kid Mac doesn't die. Lenora doesn't die. Lenora doesn't die. Peggy was dead on the scene. Mm-hmm. And Dorwart doesn't die. Yeah. In fact, I, when I looked up her um, death certificate, you know, they usually give like a primary source and then a contributory source sometimes. So, you know, like if you died from diabetes, but you had the heart attack was the primary thing and mm-hmm. diabetes was contributory, the contributory statement on it said was murdered. I'm like, yeah, oh. that'll, that'll do it. That will do it. So... This goes to trial pretty quickly, I think, right? Uh, within the next six months. Yeah, which is, I mean, by today's standards, that's that's pretty quick. Yeah. And it's pretty open and shut case. Yeah, what um, is interesting is this is also happening at the same time as the Leopold and Loeb trial. They were two, I think, Chicago students who decided to kidnap and murder a little boy, basically just to see if they could do it. Oh, geez. Everyone thought that they would get the chair, you know, and they didn't. And so this is in the midst of his trial. He gets uh, this idea that you know, maybe he'll be able to go free as well, like or, or not die in the electric chair. Mm-hmm. So what's the outcome of the trial? He's sentenced to prison for a term of no less than seven, and I think no more than either 14 or 19 years, but he only serves about seven years in prison for the murder. Yeah, he's boxing again by the 30s. Yeah, <laughs> during the Depression. Yeah. He makes a, a, a miraculous conversion while in jail and becomes an evangelical. Question. Do you think his sentence would have been harsher were Peggy LaRue not employed in a house of ill repute? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. 
Absolutely. Yeah. She was considered expendable. Yeah. If she was just someone, if they he had picked up, you know, just some just some good girl. Yeah, local mm-hmm. local girl. Yeah. She wasn't from around here. Mm-hmm. So there was less invested interest. Yeah, I absolutely think that. Don't worry about Leonora. She goes on to be married like five more times. <laughs> Apparently getting shot in the cheek was not an impediment to her being able to pick up men. I pick up some information about her in a later article that's kind of interesting. Also, uh, can we talk about Grace Parago's place? The fact that she openly says during Prohibition that there are plenty of drinks here. Yeah. <laughs> the girls don't have to leave. That, I think everybody knew that already. That it's mentioned that she had dope there. Yeah. So I'm getting a picture of Parago that's a little more sinister than just your happy madam running your friendly house of ill repute. Yes. She's also, I think, has some mental health issues. Mm-hmm. She appears in the newspaper just like a, a year later, attempting suicide with sleeping tablets. She's not She's not leading a happy None of the people are leading a happy life. Right. But it sounds like, so. especially when she mentions the other girl that got killed had been with her since Philadelphia, mm-hmm. which means she brought her back to Columbia. Mm-hmm. She's got, you know, quote unquote, dope on the premises. I'm getting a whole picture here where you... Mm-hmm. You get your employees hooked on dope. Yeah, and then they have to do things. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, and you don't let them leave. Yeah. There's plenty of men and drinks around Grace Parago's place. Not a pretty picture being uh, painted there. No. As we talked about before, it kind of comes to light within a few weeks when they realize that Peggy LaRue is not really Peggy LaRue, and she's not really Peggy mm-hmm. Snyder, and she's not married to a former attorney. She had run away with a former attorney. She is really Mrs. Abbott. She has two little children at home. Mm-hmm. I did some research on them. I wanted to be like, oh, they led amazingly happy lives and everything was okay. Um, eh, It's real life. (laughs) Um, Her son was killed in um, a car accident when he was in his 30s and left five children behind. And her daughter, I think, lived to be in her 90s. So that's something, I guess. I mean, for all of the... um, the distress that she called her caused her family. She is buried in the family plot with the rest of the family members. Her estranged husband did come to pick up her body. Yes. One interesting detail. She was buried in her nurse's outfit. They said she was buried in, in the white nurse's clothes. I think that's sort of like, to me, that seems like a symbolic return to sort of purity. Kind of, an, or like that time where she was helping people, you know, she, th- like, highlighting she, the good that she did do. Yeah, that was life. like the, the respectable time in her life. Mm-hmm. So Sailor Kid Mac goes on after his return to boxing and gets another uh, sort of career, doesn't he? Yeah, he starts uh, ministering to people because he's had, you know, one of the great conversions that happens. And then he begins preaching. So this is... June 3rd, 1933. He's already out of jail. (laughs) (laughs) Sailor Kid Mac, local pugilist, was converted at the Water Street Mission and will tell his experiences at the mission tonight at 8 o'clock. According to Mr. Doherty, the youth has been attending the weekly services for some time, giving brief testimonies of his faith on a number of occasions. Noticing that the chap took an interest in the destitute and homeless wanderers who dropped into the mission for meals and a bed, the superintendent talked with him and overheard his amazing story. Overseas at 17 years of age, wounded a year later, facing the chair at 24, and serving a seven-year penitentiary service before the complete conversion that he claims has set him right for life. He even gets married again. There's someone for everyone. (laughs) I'm guessing not to Leonora. No. Leonora, she ends up 
like I said, I think being married four or five more times Mm. and gets into a fair amount of trouble. She's in and out of the newspapers. This isn't the last time she makes the headlines. Yeah, like I said, I, I found some interesting information on her a little bit later. We'll hear. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. So the murder happens on August 9th, 1924. Mm -hmm. By February of 1925, people are already seeing Peggy LaRue's ghost. What happens in the intervening time? Like, why doesn't she show up for six months? Maybe she does, and people don't people really. haven't talked about it, but mm-hmm. it appears in the newspaper. February 5th, 1925, in the York Dispatch. Superstitious shun LaRue murder scene. Yarns being told of seeing ghosts and hearing women scream. Farmer saw a spook. The scream is interesting because Peggy didn't get the chance to scream. She was probably she was passed unconscious out. when she died. Yeah. yeah, she was passed out. And they said, I think she groaned when he shot her. But mm-hmm. that eerie spot along the Dover Road where Peggy LaRude was slain by Fred McLean on August 9th, 1924, now is being shunned by superstitious people of Dover and West Manchester Township who have occasion to pass there at night or in the dusky hours of the early morning. The story that the place is haunted by the spirit of the murdered girl has spread. Not a few people of Dover who are employed in West End Industries avoid passing the site of the tragedy and traveling to their work mornings. They make detours to avoid the spot. Stories associating the spot with the ghost of Peggy LaRue are said to have been started by a Dover man who was employed at the plant of the York Card and Paper Company. He vouches that while the trial of McLean, the slayer, was proceeding, he heard screams and moans issue from behind shrubbery which fringes the road in the vicinity of the tragedy. The screams and moans sounded like those of a woman who was being mistreated. He heard them on several mornings just before the hour of sunrise. The Dover citizen, on the first morning he heard the noises, felt no fear. Thinking a woman was in distress, he stopped his car and listened. Silence prevailed for a time. Then he plainly heard deep moans. Turning out of the road, he investigated and found nothing. The lonely spot was deserted. There was no sounds save the sighing of the frosty wind. He heard the strange noises repeatedly on several mornings thereafter, and eventually it got up his nerves so that now he puts on full power in passing the place. (laughs) He has been joshed about the story, he tells, but seriously avers that he has distinctly heard the cries of a woman on many of the mornings that he has passed the scene where the tragedy was enacted, which put one woman in her grave and three persons in the hospital. 
Other people of Dover Township spread similar stories of a woman's screams and moans issuing from the spot in the early morning hours before the sun is up. One narrator goes so far to declare that he has heard a woman's voice pleading, For God's sake, don't shoot. That particular spook story is being laughed at and its author being derided by his companions who want to know where his supply of moonshine comes from. Probably the same place that uh, (laughs) Fred McLean got his. The star spook story recounter of the lot is a West Manchester township farmer who relates an experience he claims to have had when he passed the spot one midnight while returning from a visit to York to his home. He is an unlettered man and hence had never read accounts of the shooting of the LaRue girl, though he knew from conversation he had heard that a woman had been killed along the Carlisle Road near the fairgrounds. He did not know that the woman had once been a nurse in hospitals. This is his story. As I drove near the spot, After the big snowstorm in January, I saw a woman standing by the side of the road. She was dressed in white. It was midnight. The air was bitter cold, and I wondered what a woman in night clothes, as she appeared to be, could be doing out at the late hour, exposing herself to the cold. As I drew near to her, I could see that she wore a white cap and clothes like trained nurses wear. She looked straight at me with the saddest eyes I ever saw. I stopped my car and said to her, My God, woman! What are you doing here at this hour? You must be half frozen. You look cold. Get in my car and ride. She made no reply, but backed away, and as she stepped near a snowbank, she vanished. Then I knew that I had been talking to a spook. I remembered that a woman had been killed near there last summer. I felt my hair raising and my flesh creeping. You bet I got away from there in a big hurry. I wouldn't go there again at night for all the money in the banks of York. Probably not that much money. The man who relates the foregoing tale earnestly contends that he saw the apparition he so minutely describes. He is a firm believer in the ability of departed spirits to return and communicate with the living. As he is a serious-minded and very pious man, many superstitious people are receiving his story with awesome credulity. Lenora O'Brien Speaks Lenora O'Brien, who was seriously wounded by shots fired by Fred McLean at the time he killed Peggy LaRue, discredits the spook stories. She said to a dispatch reporter last night, It's all a piece of foolishness. Why don't they allow poor Peggy to rest in peace? People who start such silly stories are fools. They don't know what they are talking about. How could Peggy's spirit come back? Why would she want to come back? Before she was killed, she was so full of dope and whiskey that she was dead to the world. She never knew what hit her. I wish people would forget that whole affair and quit talking about it. It's something I'd like to forget. So here we have from the horse's mouth a story that she was on dope and alcohol that night peggy and she was passed out yeah they did didn't they say she specifically felt so bad that that's why they were going to get fresh air somewhere out in the country i think so yeah yeah the 14th of june 1926 that's more than a year later people are still seeing the ghost ed rupp george leathery and companions declared that they recently saw the ghost of peggy larue at the scene of her murder They told the story to Richard Albright, Warfel Gray, Oliver Lippi, and Vinton Welsh, and took them to the scene, but the ghost failed to reappear. That was from the York Daily Record, 14th of June, 1926. And people were still seeing the ghost up into fairly modern times. This is from the York Daily Record, the 29th of October, 1999. A bad rap is blamed by some for the appearance of one spirit in West Manchester Township. A book published to celebrate the township's bicentennial mentions the murder of Peggy LaRue, a nurse from Lancaster in the mid-1920s. She was shot dead after a party she and her boyfriend attended in what was then a lover's lane. 
in the area between Carlisle Avenue and Bannister Street. The book reports that a prostitute named Nora O'Brien testified to the guilt of her boyfriend, a boxer named Sailor Kid Mac. But the book says it was speculated that it was she who actually killed Peggy, then framed the boxer. Milkman reported foggy morning sightings of Peggy LaRue's ghost near Peggy's Lane and Carlisle Road. No mention is made of her mission. Was she looking for her lost love? Does she still? So interesting information there. 20s are uh, a hotbed of infamous crime in York. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, all over the country. Yeah. So that's the first note we get that Lenora was a prostitute as well. It makes sense. It does make sense. And then the speculation that it was actually she who killed Peggy, I don't think so. It sounds pretty much open and shut that it was Sailor Kid Mac. I'm getting at like a picture of one of those kind of like slurred, drunken rambles where people are kind of fighting over a gun and a gun goes off. And Yeah, I don't know. Just people just totally kind of out of it. And Also, some wrong information here. They, they have her as a nurse from Lancaster. No. <laughs> I mean, she was a nurse, and at one time she was in Lancaster. So. so there we have the conclusion of the ghost of Peggy LaRue. A sad story. Sounds like she lived a rough life and wonder if people still see her ghost today. She became a woman in white. Indeed. Forever. Indeed. So next we're going to turn the mics over to John and Sam from Riverbend Comics. They're going to tell us about some comics with ghosts in them. You can find them at riverbendcomics.com. I want to thank John and Sam for doing this segment for us. My name is John. I'm Sam. And uh, we are... Riverbend Comics. Riverbend Comics. Happy to be here. Thanks to Tim Renner for having us. And uh, right now, I've been reading all kinds of spooky stuff all month. And so we're going to bring you a couple ghost stories today. Very different kinds of ghost stories. um, And talk about each one. And uh, see what you guys think. You want to lead us off on that? What are we talking about? Well, we're going to start off talking about um, one of Jeff Lemire's early books. If you're familiar with Sweet Tooth, which is a show on Netflix right now, then you know about Jeff Lemire. Jeff Lemire is a um, pretty popular name right now in the comic book uh, authoring artistry business. Uh, he's done a bunch of stuff, Sweet Tooth being one of them. Uh, we're going to talk about Royal City. Pu- Royal City is published by... This is an Image Comics. This is an Image comic, yeah. right. He's done a lot of stuff for um, you know some of the mainstream publishers like DC and um, stuff like that. Like I think he did Black Hammer. Uh, yeah, Black Hammer for Dark Horse. He also did recently did a um, an issue of Silver Coin, which is I think an image yeah publication. He has a story in one of the recent uh, Green Arrow anthologies for DC. So he does the mainstream stuff. He's across the board. He's across the board. But so we really like his his um, kind of personal, more personal stories because he writes very. I think he writes pretty autobiographically, or at least from the world that he came from. You can, are, yeah, you can definitely tell like themes that are. These are characters threads that, that are running through all of them. Yeah, these are characters that have uh, emerged <clears throat> from his own experience, and I think one of the themes running through his work is, I would just if you look at his artwork, uh, you have an interesting take on his artwork because initially he didn't like it. Yeah, I so I, <clears throat> art's kind of my thing, and I, I love a good story, and I always feel like I feel like really good art can save a mediocre story, but mediocre art can't really save a good story. Um, 
And I avoided Sweet Tooth for a long time, even though everyone said how great it was. And I decided, well, maybe I'll just watch the show. And I watched the first episode of the Netflix series, and I actually loved it. And I thought, man, I need to go back and read the the comic and see, um, you know, all the hype. And um, absolutely loved it. I tore through the whole like sixty issue series in a very short period of time. And in the process of doing that, I actually fell in love with his artwork that I didn't like to begin with. And now when I picked up Royal City, I was like, ah, oh, there's that Jeff Lemire, very distinctive artwork. That so I how love. would you describe it? Um, you know, it's it's a little bit sloppy and sketchy. He has like a very specific kind of color tone that he uses a lot, which is very kind of muted. Um, his his people all tend to look really kind of haggard and broken, which yeah. which fits his storylines. Yeah. Um, They've got those drawn faces and the high cheekbones and like... Uh, there's a pallor to their skin. I mean, there's a guy who's obviously ill, but <clears throat> there's a pallor to their skin, which is pretty washed out. There are like little shades of pink and orange to like set off that pallor so you could see that it's human skin. Um, but some of the characters are really, really like almost transparent. Um, and they, Haggard is exactly the word I use for it. Put upon, um, just sort of like worn down. Um, and their hair is unkempt, and they have dark circles under their eyes, and they're—they don't—they rarely smile. Um, yeah, there's a lot of like surprise or discomfort or you know just abject sadness on their faces. And so, like, if you just opened up a Jeff Lemire book um, from the outset, you'd be like, "Oh, these are not characters that are going to be fun to, to to read through." Um, but that's that's obviously not the point. Um, these aren't fun stories necessarily. They're stories that are really wrenching, actually. Um, and, I, you know, as you said, like the characters, the way the faces are drawn and stuff really fits their, uh, the mentality of the stories, the thematic nature of the stories, uh, the, the general overarching emotions of them, which is sadness. Yeah. Um, so if you're, if you're into sadness, <laughs> Jeff Mears' <laughs> Royal Man. City is for you. Yeah. So let's talk about the story a bit. And really it is a tremendous sadness that sits at the at the at the crux of this story. Yeah, this is this is about a family. Uh who Stop right there, that's sadness immediately. Yeah, we all know that. <laughs> um so yeah, we've got this family who is pretty broken. Uh they live in a city called Royal City, which is a manufacturing city. The individuals we meet throughout it all seem to be sort of blue collar down on their luck. It feels kind um, of midwestern. Very midwestern. Some of them have tried to escape and find their way back, like the oldest brother here and um but we have the parents, we have uh, three adult siblings, and then we have their youngest sibling, Tommy, who passed away at some point in the past. And so the siblings kind of reemerge or reconvene in the town to deal with the fact that their father had a stroke and is in a coma in the hospital. And so a lot of family stuff comes up. And as we meet all the characters, we find out that all of them... They all see Tommy. Yeah, in a way that for works best for them. He died when he was 15, but he, he manifests himself for them in all the ways they wish they saw him now, in his best form, or at least in a way that like would work best for each individual family member. So, for example, the mother sees him, <clears throat> and at first, the, this we're, we're giving this away because it's, it's kind of the main conceit, but if you read the back of the book, you'd learn that this was true. Um, you know, the discerning reader will, will kind of pick up on the fact that Tommy's a ghost probably right away um, because each of the characters sees him and interacts with him as if he's actually there 
in, in their own sort of special, unique way. So the mom, for example, sees him as a grown-up priest and who lives this virtuous life and is all about good and all about God and all about finding positivity and goodness everywhere, whereas um, one of the other brothers who's kind of a, a ne'er-do-well, can't hold down a job, uh, owes people money, is a drug addict, sees Tommy as like a partner in crime. And then there's the sister who sees him as a little boy. And so all of them, like, the, the sense you get is all of them see him as, as the way Tommy works best for them now. And he's kind of arrested in time in that way. Yeah, they're kind of seeing Tommy as almost almost as if they need him to be for them. Mm-hmm. And they see themselves a little bit in Tommy as well. They all kind of learn and grow, at least in this first volume, through their interactions with this ghost. And this is volume one of a three-book series. You've and, just read uh, volume one. Yeah, I've only read the first one. I read volume. the whole series. So it doesn't get any more uplifting, <laughs> I'll tell you that. Yeah. I won't give anything away, but the, what you learn in the first in the first. Uh, series at least is yet the father's had a stroke and the father's also kind of seeing Tommy in in a way that is uh, I don't know what the proper strange familiar's term for it would be but he's sort of coming across the airwaves uh, both metaphorically and and literally because the father's into antique radios and he's hearing Tommy's voice and there's this liminal state I think that Jeff Lemire is pointing to between life and death where there are, um, there's, a, there's like, I, the best term I can come up with is like a crossover, like an overlapping. Yeah. Um, where the dead are in touch with the living. And the father, since he's in this coma, is having one of those experiences where he's kind of like spirited away to another realm where Tommy exists. Uh, and the, this is leaking out to him right before his, his stroke in the sound waves from the radio that he's listening to. And so you, you get this sense that there's like this other world, other presence that's, that's, that's right around the corner or, or, or just through the, the sort of this, this membrane there, which you can reach through if you're, if you're on the way to death. And so death per- permeates the entire story. Yeah, for me, this was like the perfect kind of ghost story. It's all, the entire family is haunted by the spirit of their lost loved one but not haunted in a terrifying way. It's haunted in a way that like pushes their edges, um, comforts them in a way, but also sort of pulls them along in their journey to get um, wherever they're going. And I'll, I'll find that out in the next volume. What are the, like the, the, the points of this that are, that are most compelling to you and why would you recommend it? Well, kind of like we said at the beginning, like <laughs> family, um, the, the concept of, uh, see, I wouldn't understand because my, I grew up in a oh, per- could, yeah. perfectly functional family. Nobody had any difficulties with anybody else. There were no alcoholics. Oh no, no. there was no verbal or emotional <laughs> abuse. Everybody got along. So th- I, this was difficult for me to get into because, you know, that's not, <laughs> yeah. Cause your people are batting a thousand. My people are batting a thousand. Yeah. So I'm, I always love sort of broken family dramas. Uh, and then to take the ghost story aspect of it and do it in a way that it's pretty unique and not cliche. I thought was really great. I also love the idea of a story that we know is uh, finite. Yeah. So a comic, you know, a lot of comics, you know, a lot of superhero comics, they go on for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of issues, and uh, it can get kind of old. But I, I love the fact that I know that this is three volumes. It's got a beginning, a middle, and end, and it will be complete unto itself. And so I, I appreciate that aspect of it as well. I guess you resonate this because, like, it's sort of similar with four kids in the family with one girl and three boys, and sort of that's. That was your family situation too, like yeah, yeah, for sure, makeup. for sure. No ghosts though. No, no. Well, yeah. Are you sure about that? <laughs> not, not in this way. Uh, okay. We have, we have probably many skeletons in the closet. I don't nice. know what ghosts. Well, so, but okay. So, to connect this a little bit more to the, you know, the supernatural, so to speak, 
Um, where are you on ghosts? How do you how do you feel about ghosts in general as a as a concept? Oh, I mean, I'm I'm fascinated by it. I've never had a personal experience with something I would call a ghost. I would love to. Uh, I have people in my family. Uh, my mom's house is haunted, and she has had experience experiences that she has talked about um, as a complete non-believer that have made her believe. And uh, she has actually made concessions in her home to accommodate the spirit that lives there and has made peace with it. My take on ghosts is kind of like my take on all of this stuff is that we don't know. And too many people have seen and experienced too many things to discount it. But whether those things are ghosts, whether there's something else, we don't know. Um, I don't know what it is. I'm fascinated by it. So my wife, who is a pretty rational person, I mean, most of the time, and her brother, yeah, and her brother, who is, you know, claims to be grounded in reality, um, had a ghost experience themselves. This was when they were back, I think, in after their father died, they went to um, spread his ashes at one of his favorite places in uh, New Hope, Pennsylvania, which is um, east of here, where we sit uh, on the Delaware River, and um, they stayed in like a, a hotel. The night before they went and did this, and I'm, I'm probably getting the story wrong, but uh, you know, it's close enough. And when they were in this hotel, they both experienced the presence of a young girl, very distressed young girl, who was sort of making her way across the room and uh, was kind of wispy, ethereal, transparent, but definitely there. I also have experienced little pieces, bits and pieces here and there, nothing that overt, but but certainly enough that I would say that like. There is a liminal space beyond that membrane that um, we can connect to, tap into. I, you know, when my children were little, they both connected to their dead grandparents uh, and knew things and said things that they couldn't possibly have known. You know, like as far as tangible evidence goes, I don't need it, but that's enough. We are going to connect another ghost story, which is a much more, I would say, overt ghost story in the sense that the ghost plays a, a main character role. Um, in The Me You Love in the Dark, uh, which is a, a title by Scotty Young. Now, if you're familiar with Scotty Young, you know him as somebody who is pretty irreverent, um, kind of a jokester. Uh, his covers are always very cartoony. So this is a different kind of departure for him. Yeah, and I'm really thankful that Scotty Young did not do the art chores on this. Um, so you reason, don't like Scotty Young's art? Not a big fan. Being, I mean, I'm really uh so we just so strange familiars just lost a fan okay they scotty young will now not listen to strange familiars that's all right um i uh i do really like the artist that is working on this is a guy named jorge corona and he also teamed up with scotty young for a different image series called middle west which um i haven't read but after uh reading these i may have to check that out so this is a five issue series and three of the issues are out currently so we're only partway through the story we've read the first three um, they're a little bit weird. Uh, I'm not sure where this is going, but um, this is basically about a woman named Ro, who is an artist who looks to find a place to rent so that she can have some solitude to work on her craft. Um, and uh, she rents this house, which the realtor tells her is haunted. And she says, I don't care. It's perfect. Let's do this. And so she moves in knowing that it's haunted, but not taking it seriously and speaking to the ghost and saying, oh, you could at least pour me some coffee and things like that. Um, and then one day the ghost answers and they develop this kind of strange relationship, which is still developing as of the third issue. <laughs> and uh, Is it ever? Yeah, it's, it's pretty wild. Um, so 
essentially this ghost is an incubus. Do you know what an incubus is? Tell us. <laughs> so an incubus, um, at least the, the definitions I can find, uh, refer to a male spirit that uh, creates a relationship, uh, usually ending in sexual, sexual relationship. relationship with with females. Is this is an incubus related to a succubus? A succubus is a female, female right? Okay. Yeah, and so um, they don't refer to the ghost in this comic as an incubus, but clearly it's heading in that direction. It's kind of weird and. She is somewhat weirded out by the, this spirit, but sort of takes a liking to it, and it becomes like a constant companion for her uh, in various ways. And I don't want to give away too many spoilers here, but um, yeah, that's it's it's really fascinating. And uh, you're probably not going to get this reference, is my guess, but there is a, and I don't remember the title of it, maybe one of the listeners can tell us, there is a classic 1980s horror movie where there is a crazy character running through the field screaming, Beware the incubus! Beware the incubus! Yeah, I have no idea. And uh, my brother and I would watch that like crazy. And sometimes, uh, even as adults, uh, when my brother is around and um, we don't see very often, he'll sometimes just walk over to me and just lean in close and say, "Beware the incubus!" Well, um, indeed, beware the incubus. I see. The sense I get from this title, from this story, is that the incubus—it's unclear what its motives are. Um, you know, this story is like it's conventional in that sense. It, it, the conventional strategy uh, would be like, here is this benign character, which actually turns out to be really evil. And then the protagonist needs to fight it or extricate herself from it or defeat it in some way. That's completely unclear to me what the situation is. Like, yes, it starts off in that kind of conventional way where it's benign and then it like sucks her in in the way that an incubus would. And is something bad going to happen? Is it then going to like... I don't know, impregnate her and the devil spawn will be oh growing inside. Like, I, there's many different places this could go, but it's so, it is Scotty Young-esque in that it's kind of irreverent. Like, yeah. the stuff that they talk about and the things that they do, like, it pours her wine, it puts records on for her, and it kind of seduces her with the music, and, like, she seems pretty amenable to this. She strikes me as someone who's, like, pretty lonely. Well, and as an artist, she was kind of struggling, which is why she came out here. And this spirit kind of becomes her muse. And her art is now flourishing because of this strange spectral relationship she has. Yeah. And uh, and they the, the one bizarre thing that happens um, as they kind of like... I like the way time moves. Like, time moves like you can see it through. She's like baking Christmas cookies. Mm-hmm. First, it's, there's Halloween kids, and then she's baking Christmas cookies. She's been there for a while. Yeah. And... Um, at one point, like, they start to become, like, movie buddies, and she, like, makes popcorn for it. Yeah. And then, like, and then like there's this... I, maybe the listeners, like, read, if they buy this uh, and read the comic, they can explain this to me, but, like, there seems to be something bizarre happening wherein they watch the same movie over and over and over again. Yeah, that seems significant, and they haven't really and there's, there's, dropped that. So they watch About Time, yet. which I've never seen, and they watch Love Actually. Now, the only thing that I can tell you about those two movies that connects them is they both have Bill Nye in them. Is that true? Yeah. Bill Nye the science guy? No, Bill Nye, the British guy. Oh. <laughs> N-I-G-H-Y. Gotcha. He's the guy with a really angular face who kind of like talks like this. And, and he's, not, he's not in the science at all? He might be, but in these films, he's, well, so About Time is about a time traveler, and you know what Love Actually is about. Yeah. It's uh, roundly considered to be the worst movie ever made. Um, but Bill Nye's in it. He plays like a rock musician, an aging huh. rock musician who finds companionship and love. Well, that's some bizarre films to show up in this book. My favorite Bill Nye, Bill Nye film is um, They're Zombies. 
and <laughs> but it's like a comedy. Do you know this film? I hate comedies, so no. Oh, okay. Shaun of the Dead. Shaun of the Dead. Okay. I did not know that that movie had sequels. That movie has Hot Fuzz and like The End of the World is like the third one or something. Huh. No. So, I mean, you, so you've seen Shaun of the Dead? No, I have not. Oh my God, it's hilarious. It's been highly recommended to me at the time, but because of my... You don't like comedies. You I, I'm super picky with comedies. You don't think anything that anybody else thinks is funny is funny. Yeah. Uh, which is like part of the quirks of your personality. But this is objectively hilarious. Fair enough. And... Um, the best part of the movie is when Simon Pegg has to shoot his own mother because <laughs> she's turned back, into a zombie. Back, back to family issues. Uh, right. And he's like, oh, ma, I'm going to have to shoot you in the head now. And everybody's like, oh, you got to shoot her. And so he kills her. But Bill Nye plays her boyfriend. And like he's one of the first guys to go zombie. Huh. And I will tell you that Bill Nye is a zombie is very believable. He doesn't have to do much. Okay. He's like the British Christopher Walken. I'm going to add that to my list. Bill Nye, the science guy. So, so in the end of the movie, Love in the Dark, in the, uh, the third uh, issue in the series, th- they're getting intimate. Things are heating up. Things are heating up. All right, so ghost stories. What, 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 how do we want to end this? How do we want to wrap this up? Um, check these out. I think they're both worth reading. Um, if you have other favorite comic book ghost stories, uh, send them our way. I would love to hear what you all are reading. Um, and check out our website. We have uh, all of these in stock and more. Uh, riverbendcomics.com uh, also on Instagram you can go there and find uh, we'll put up some images of these books we talked about so you can see some visuals and see what we're talking about and um, follow us on Instagram before we do the curiosity of the week I want to thank Jason W for his PayPal donation thank you so much Jason we're back to the fortune telling cards good fortunes as told by the lines of the hand, line of life, when this line is long, distinct, and unbroken, signifies long life. That's a image of a hand embossed. Does it look like yours? I'm looking at mine. I'm thinking, I, those lines don't really resemble the ones of my hand. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> it tells which, it, it has it labeled, the, the line of I always life. look at it and I'm like, I don't have any of the right lines. Yeah, and then it's like, it's I don't like know. indistinct and kind of like the older you get, the more just sort of lines you have anyway. <laughs> yeah, I'm not I'm not a big fan of of divining the future. I'm I'm real weird about that. A lot of people are like, let me read your cards, and I'm like, no, <laughs> because I'm not superstitious about it necessarily. I am worried that I'm going to let whatever reading subconsciously influence my decisions. So things become self-fulfilling prophecies. Exactly, exactly. So I don't mess with divination too much as far as... Uh, Unless a self-fulfilling prophecy is like really great. Yeah, but you never know. I, you know, it's it's a whole thing. And it, the deal with divination is, you know, it's, it's like anything else. Even if it's a happy future, you know, there's always a twist with this stuff. It's in every other, every story about you know, making a deal with the devil or a genie or something. Or my, like my favorite Twilight Zone, the one where the guy finally gets to read all the books in the library himself and then realizes his glasses are broken. Right. That's yeah. what would happen to me. It's always a twist <laughs> like that. So for myself, hey, if you're interested in divination, more power to you. For myself, I'm I'm just... Here's another question you know. about divination. Does not the act of divining potentially change the future? Absolutely could. It absolutely could. I mean, that's that's I'm not trying to be a, like a. That's some strange familiar thinking right a, there. A pretend quantum. So this theorist. is uh, this. I think it's the third fortune telling card we've had as our curiosity of the week. 
This is from 1907. And it, yeah, that one's kind of an early one. It's nice. Yeah, it's it's very nicely printed. Like I said, it's embossed printing. It's postally used, as postcard collectors say. I like that, though, because you can see um, what year it was sent. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, we would just be kind of taking a guess on that. Also, I like that it was sent to someone in Paisley, Scotland. <laughs> and somehow it ends up here. Yeah. So... If you go to the show notes under this episode at strangefamiliars.com, there will be an image of this card. If you click on that, it'll take you to our Etsy shop where you can buy this and other curiosities of the week. We still have those pain tablets. I was really hoping as we were reading that article that the doctor they took them to would have been the doctor that issued those pain tablets, but no such luck. There's actually more doctors than you think, so. Mm -hmm. And they all had their own quack medicine, so. (laughs) While you're at our Etsy shop, you can check out our other offerings. We have Strange Familiars t-shirts there. We're out of a few sizes, but we do have, I think, small, medium, 2X, and maybe... Th- no, we're out of 3X. We, I think we have small, medium, and maybe one or two 2Xs at this time. We are getting restocked soon, so we'll have Strange Familiars shirts back in soon. I think I might do a long sleeve shirt as well. Uh, for the winter, so we'll have a, a sort of different design. Oh, available. that's good. I always love long sleeve t-shirt. It shouldn't be that big of an anomaly, but it's always like, oh, it's long sleeve. <laughs> so we will be having a new design in our Etsy shop too. That'll be so we'll have two kind of exclusive designs that are only available there. Ooh. Of course, we have all of our T Public shirts as well. You can find those at our T Public shop. But the ones in our Etsy shop are professionally silk screened and very nice. Also at Etsy, artwork. I should be having a few new originals there lately because I'm, I'm working on something that I can't really announce yet that c- came up recently. It's kind of an illustration project, but it's uh, engendering quite a few illustrations. So I should have some new originals up there before too long. We have, like I said, previous curiosities of the week. We've got my books are up there. All my books are in stock right now. My art books, my art booklet, Monsters Under the Hospital Bed, all kinds of stuff. Go ahead and check it out. Our Etsy shop name is Lost Grave, one word. But if you type in Strange Familiars in the search bar, our stuff should come up. While you're on Etsy, make sure to check out our friends at Karmic Garden and check out Chad's shop, which is Ruck Rabbit Outdoors. All right, uh, patrons, you'll be getting the Slybold Rainadine show very soon. Like I said, it's the first of our shows that kind of explore the paranormal and supernatural aspects of the traditional folk ballads. Super excited about that. It's a fun episode for me to do and something I've wanted to do for a long time. That should be coming soon. If you're not a patron and you just want to pick up that one episode, it will be available, like I said, on the Strange Familiars Bandcamp to purchase that single episode. But it'll probably be more than actually just becoming a patron. So best deal is to become a patron and get it for free. That way you get all the other episodes as well. Anything to add, Allison? Oh, you totally floored me. I wasn't expecting that. No, I, I can't think of anything. Am I supposed to be adding something? No, I'm just asking. Anything to promote, Allison? <laughs> Will you be doing a stand-up anywhere this week? Um, a few sets in the kitchen. Okay. Yeah, and then there's always... Well, this time of year, I like to do like a long extended gig under the covers watching TV for about six months, just sad. (laughs) (laughs) And so I've started that this week, like the blanket is on. We share a lot in common, you and I, and we share a lot of of similar interests. But one thing we don't is winter and summer. Summer, 
I swear I get seasonal affective disorder in the summer. I, I get depressed. I feel like I can't leave the house. It's too hot to do anything. I'm not a fan. We cross over as winter comes. You sort of... Uh, you get excited. You're like, oh, I can stay up. I don't have to worry about like potentially the bats flying into the house. I don't have to worry about the heat. And I can hike. I don't. Yeah, yeah, you can get a good night's rest and and I can I, night hike without hornets attacking us. I, and I'm just cold and sad until early April. Yeah, we kind of meet in the fall and the spring as far as that goes. <laughs> it is. It's like a. It's like a ballad or <laughs> or the time in like Lady Hawk for like that half a second before like you know. Right. Yeah. yeah. Where they could another they could. timely reference. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Patrons, you'll be getting the show very soon. Everyone else, we'll be back with another episode of Strange Familiars, probably next week. (laughs) I don't have any plans not to be back next week. Strange Familiars is a production of Dark Holler Arts, music, books, art, podcasts, and more. Intro and background music is by Stone Breath. To hear more or to purchase music by Stone Breath, you can go to stonebreath.bandcamp.com. Strange Familiars is on Facebook, facebook.com slash strangefamiliars, where you can join the Strange Familiars gathering group. We are on Instagram, at strangefamiliars, one word. And you can always find us at strangefamiliars.com. to
Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.